Well, I'm back. I haven't uh, toasted any champagne yet. It's still uh, New Year's Eve, 2014. And I was uh, telling my listeners about that rock bottom day. And, uh, you know, this is uh, a night to seriously consider 2015 New Year's resolutions. My resolution to you, as you listen to me on a daily basis, and I can't thank you enough because gratitude is an attitude after all, and we are a community-based television station in our minds online, and then we are a community-based radio station called Blink Radio, WSQF. What I really want to emphasize is the moral of the story I just told about you know, me hitting rock bottom and my private victories. I mentioned four. One of them was my contributions to Belen. What I didn't elaborate is although they threw me away, told me to maybe, you know, throw me to the curb, I was uh, very fortuitous in the ninth grade to have discovered and stumbled upon someone I had sold raffle tickets to. And uh, our mantra was basically meant for others, where our parents paid double for the other half of the student body to attend Belen for free. So to make up the difference, we sell Tombola tickets. Tombola means festival. And um, the schools put up their kiosks. Each class, homeroom class, has a different game. And the grand prize at the end of the night is usually a car. Thank God that Belen had a lot of prominent graduates in Cuban exile. Therefore, they could either buy a car to put it up for, for the grand prize or uh, an alumni actually owned the dealership. In this case, I remember it was a Volvo. And I went around downtown. They used to send the best salesman or the best Tombola ticket uh Ravel ticket salesman, in a bus. They packed us in a bus and sent us to downtown. And uh, we already had built a rendering of what the school would look like. Uh, we already had uh, pledged monies for the land. And we were working for this clause to actually close on the land. So lo and behold, I you know, kind of was a smart... I was from Key Biscayne, so I, I lived a little bit more affluent life. And I knew that it was the same effort to, to raise $1. It was to raise $10. It's just uh, zeros. You know, everything in life... Uh, I say it all the time on this show is, you know, initiative, finesse, and tempo, everything. Everything you encounter in life is initiative, finesse, and tempo. The rest is just add or adding zeros to your thinking. I don't think it's much different. It's just who you're talking to. So I sold my raffle tickets by the 10. It was senseless to give a big old spiel and pitch and, you know, get the objections and then at the end get a, a sale of a dollar. So I would say, look, you know, I sell them by the book. I mean, it's a great grand prize, a Volvo. Buy a book, and not, I'll send you another kid, one of my fellow classmates, to sell you a dollar. Anyway, I'm in this uh, one Biscayne Tower. It was the tallest building at the time on Biscayne Boulevard, way before SunTrust Tower and all the big towers you see today in downtown Miami. So I'm going to one Biscayne Tower, and I'm sitting there in an elevator. And, of course, you know, I'm already six foot tall. I was already, you know, sexually active. You know, I had high self-esteem. And, but I was in the ninth grade, very young for my age. And uh, sure enough, I, I approached the secretary, the sexy lady in the elevator. And the man behind me says, hey, kid, there's no soliciting in the building. I will uh, call security. Please leave. Well, I turned to him and I said, do you know who I am? And before he could answer, I was out the door, through the elevator door. I don't remember what floor I landed on. It's immaterial at this point. But... I went skipping around, you know, fifth floor, sixth floor, 10th floor, 12th floor, all the way up to the penthouse at the end of the day. It was probably two in the afternoon by then. And uh, sure enough, I opened the door uh, at the penthouse and I uh, see the lady that I spoke to at the elevator. <clears throat> I asked her, well, are you going to buy a raffle ticket? I said it loud enough that 
she, you know, she shunned. And uh, she closed her eyes in a squint and in a hand gesture. Uh, she said to shut up, you know. Shh. Hey, kid, you're still here? Come in here. And I looked at her like, is that the same guy? And she said, yeah, you know, she gave me the okay that it was. I entered the room. And he goes, what are you still doing here? I go, sir, you never answered my question. That's why I'm still here. Go ahead. What's the question again? I go, do you know who I am? And he says, obviously not. He goes, I'm a man for others. Our school has half of its student body on scholarship. Our parents pay double. And we make up the difference with these raffle tickets. And I'm here to sell you a book of tickets. Look, if you promise to leave the building, he said, here. And he throws me the dollar. And I look at him and I said, sir, if you want a Volvo, you know, I sell them by the tens. You think they send me here to downtown because I don't sell a lot of raffle tickets? You know, I sell them by the ten. You know, I'll send you one of my friends. He'll come up here and, and sell you a dollar ticket, but I sell them by the ten. And he goes, here. Now, tell me a little bit more about your school. And I go, sir, if you want to know more about my school, the address, the phone number, and the name of the school is on the raffle tickets. Buy a book of 10. So he goes, here it is. Just showed it to you. So I see a crumbled up 10 there. Thought that was kind of gnarly for an executive, you know. Crumbled 10, you know, no fancy wallet. I don't get it. So anyway, I emptied out about 45 short book of tickets that I already had sold. And I told him, sorry, sir, I'm sold out. And I left. I go down to the bus and I tell my friends, hey, there's a guy who will buy a book of tickets who hasn't sold much. My friend, good friend of mine, a guy named Eddie Fuller, he says, man, I'll sell him a book of 10. And he runs out, doesn't give me the opportunity to even solicit the idea to others in the, in the bus. He runs up there. And he sells him a book of 10. And I tell him, look, man, don't come back here with a dollar ticket because I'll be upset. Lo and behold, months later, I'm in school and I'm called to the office. So I'm kind of worried. Uh, what could this be about? I immediately uh, enter the principal's office and uh, basically he says, you know, do you know this gentleman? And of course, I deny it. Deny, deny, deny. And he goes, well, apparently he knows you. So uh, please go to the auditorium. Our school was like a little tiny, poor urban school on 8th Street. I mean, it, was, uh, it looked more like a, you know, like a homeless shelter than anything else. But our auditorium was basically the largest room in the building. And it's, you know, it could maybe, it could maybe house you know, 50 people. But anyway, I walked down there really worried that I was going to get suspended or something. And uh, maybe my parents were there for a meeting. I don't know. I was just, you know, concerned. When I get in there, I run into a standing ovation. There it was, 15 people clapping for for my generosity or my success. I don't know what, but I was like stunned. I go, what could this possibly be about? And this American guy, really tall, handsome guy, was, you know, smiling with a big smile. 
apparently had written a check to complete the actual land purchase of Belen that's in West Aid today. So I find it fitting that I was thrown out in 1987, but back in 19, sorry, uh, back in 1983, and then in ninth grade, I was actually somehow, some way, this odd reason for us even being in a new school. So where the land sits today in Belen Jesuit, uh, I can honestly say was a private victory. So that's my biggest private victory, I think, in my life. The second I mentioned was Coach Stewart, who benched me. I think it was like two games left or three games left. He was a quarterback coach, and he told the head coach to bench me, you know, that we were never going to win with me because I was just too slow. And uh, my substitute ended up winning no games. The only two games that we won were the two that I won as quarterback. One of them, I was on the bench as second-string quarterback while I was the holder of the field goal team, and I ran for the touchdown because I knew my kicker couldn't make it. So both games, I think we won, I don't know, 7-6, 9-6, something like that, you know. We scored one touchdown, big deal. But it's ironic that I won the only two games we won that season even though I was benched. So that was Coach Stewart. I had been making comments on Herald.com during the week as he was winning playoff games asking him if he remembered who his first quarterback was. So I knew I had to go to the game up in the Citrus Bowl, up in, I believe, Jacksonville, or very close to it, or is it Orlando? can't remember now, but the old Citrus Bowl. So here we are. Now I've mentioned three, right? The school itself, Coach Stewart, Coach Gene Ferreiro, and now my fourth was my friend Anthony Grant was the only black guy in our school. His brother was a very popular athlete named Elton who graduated a couple of years earlier as, I believe, uh, cum laude or summa cum laude. Anthony was no cum laude, but I knew that uh, he could be my center, and I really wanted to get a scholarship in, to some small school. So there it was. I was convincing him to uh, learn to hit this backboard shot. To see him today, earlier in the week, after Chris Henry had died and he was in the news and all that, to see him on the front page of the sports page of Miami Herald signing this deal for University of Alabama was mind-numbing. He, he basically mentions Belen that he started playing basketball there, but, you know, the old story, you know, I learned to play hoops in the hood. So, you know, I'm a little taken aback by that. You know, you always want a little bit more credit than you really deserve, but that's how he perceived it. You know, he learned to play basketball in the hood and, playing in 7th and 8th grade at Belen and the backboard shot and, um, you know, you know, go Max mom paying for, you know, Kiwani summer camps, all that stuff, you know, is just water under the bridge. You know, it's, those are immaterial details in other people's lives. But for me, they were private victories. So there he was. Earlier in the month, my older brother attended an awards banquet by uh, – you know, as an alumni, because he graduated in 76. And he told me about the picture that Gene Ferreiro was retired in the Belen Hall of Fame, and the picture was with me. That's another private victory. So here are the four private victories. Now, I'm going to answer the question of why Chris Henry died and I lived. And I'm sitting in, a, in this most God incidence moment. I mean, I'm sitting in a waiting room watching my daughter... I mean, sorry, my father uh, 
you know, dying of diabetes right in front of me. And I know he's going to go into the doctor's office. I'm in the waiting room and he was going to lie to the doctor about all the chocolate he ate and all the sweets he ate. And, you know, same old, same old. But I turn to my left and I, it's, I see the April issue of in 2011. Now, two years have passed since this email. It was in Essence magazine, a magazine that I, I can honestly say I wouldn't likely have read. But nevertheless, I just opened it up and this is what I read. December 2009, Chris Henry was a dynamic young wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals. He'd seen trouble on and off the field, but was turning his life around. And in the midst of planning his wedding and what was to be determined as a tragic accident, Henry fell from the back of a moving pickup truck while arguing with his fiance, Leonie Tonga, not far from her North Carolina home. He suffered numerous head injuries and was left brain dead. His mother, Carolyn Claspy, then made a decision that would change the scope of her life and those of four very grateful people. Chris started playing football when he was five years old. People kept saying, Chris, you know, you're good enough to be something. And from then on, he just kept on moving up. He made the first string at the West Virginia University and came back home with a full scholarship. He and his fiancée, Leonie, who had three children between them, were supposed to be married in March 2010. He was just 26 years old. He was a courageous giver. I talked to Chris on December the 15th, 2009, the night before he died. He was so excited about the wedding. I came from work, following the afternoon, to find a yard full of police officers. They wouldn't be telling me anything other than what I already knew right away. I got on a plane and made it to the hospital. They brought me in to see Chris, and I pulled back the curtain to see my child lying there. His eyes were open, but he was unresponsive. The doctors told me there was nothing else they could do. They wanted me to make the decision about, I knew nothing about, organ and tissue donation. Chris wasn't a registered donor, and I never even thought about that kind of thing. So I couldn't say yes or no right then. I just had a clear understanding. One out of the room, talk privately with my son. I wanted everybody out. Chris was always a giver. If he had nothing, he still would go out there and do what he could for you. I knew he would want to help someone if he could. So I said yes. I'd admit that from the moment I wondered what kind of people would receive such a gift from my son, I knew that this stage of my life is over with Chris, but there's a new one beginning with his help. A donor and a recipient in family meeting rarely happens. So when I received a call last November from Life Share of the Carolinas that the recipients wanted to meet with me, I was just so appreciative. I walked into a room and saw the four of them. I just was blown away to hear the stories and seeing them standing there because of Chris's gifts. I learned that they are all now able to do things that they thought they would never be able to do. Some of them didn't even expect to live long enough to spend another Christmas with their families. We all hugged one another 
and they spoke about the joy they now have and how thankful they are to Chris. But I can't tell you how thankful I am to them. I put a stethoscope up to the chest of the man who received Chris' lungs. I felt as if my job was done, and now Chris is taking over. I was looking for an end to this chapter, and that moment gave it to me. Chris experienced so much in his short 26 years. I'm happy because I have all those memories of my son to share with people. Now I let others know being a donor is what being a donor is all about. It's giving your life away. It's about bringing new people into your life. My husband, my son Marcus, and I have all signed up to be organ donors. We made it a family decision. African Americans don't know enough about organ and tissue donations. So when we hear about it, there is this fear that if I'm sick and dying, the doctors will kill me to make organs to someone else's life. That's not true. This misunderstanding is why I've been speaking about organ donation everywhere. I know I lost a big part of my life in Chris, but I'm trying to get it back. God wants me to share my story and doing so is part of my closure and my healing. So as you can see, the God incidents for me and the private victories of Chris and I is the number four. I mentioned my four in life, and Chris gave four people his organs in death. Back in a moment. If you like our programming on WSQF 94.5 in Key Biscayne, you can also hear us very far away nationwide, WSQFradio.com. And if you like our audio files and our subject matter, subscribe to YouTube Mac on the Rock Rampage. Take care and stay free.